I said we were mixing it up a little bit today, and we are. One of the shortest of all parables, one sentence, Matthew 13, 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And this one sentence, this parable probably has more polarized interpretations than any other parable, just in the one sentence. And there's two main schools of thought on how this might come across. One is an interpretation that it's a sober warning, that it's a warning against the corruption of false teaching that was going to come into the church. And the second one is that it's actually an affirming hope. It's about a picture of how God transforms people thoroughly. It's one of the two things. Now, here's the thing. Just like Forrest Gump, there's only one intention, one central truth to the parable. But even so, both of these interpretations have biblical validity. In other words, that no matter which way you lean, you're not going to go off the rails in your biblical doctrine, even though only one of them is really the intent. Both of them use, uh, these interpretations use good methodology in how they come up with their answers. So it's a good exploration and reasoning. And the conclusions, as I said, are biblical. But even so, even if we believe and we hold to both uh, truths, only one of them is the intent of the parable. So it offers us a, a great opportunity here since it's safe to conjecture a little bit on them, safe to exercise your critical thinking. And that's the difference in the sermon of uh, what we're doing here is I'm not spoon feeding you anything. I'm going to offer you two schools of thought and then you use your thinking to decide which way you lean. Now, both of them involve, uh, to, to treat them with the, the level of respect uh, that they deserve, both of them need a, a complete uh, session of ex explanation. So uh, the word for the week, we did the sober warning. So I'm going to say, if you want to know that school of thought, watch word for the week. Today, we're going to do the affirming hope. Now, here's something that's uh, a little bit different for us. I'm hoping, I'm encouraging for you to listen to both. Uh, and you, where, however in the uh, media you do, of course on canincommunity.org slash media that you have in there, there are, everything is there all at once. And this is what I'd like you to do is, if you listen to both schools of thought, then you weigh in and uh, you tap a survey button that's there. It's, it's a one-question survey. Which way do you lean? And it'd be interesting just to see what percentage, how we fall, uh, which way, one way or the other. So the idea is to listen to both. Use, as we say in theological terms, your old noggin. And you decide which way you lean on this. Now. I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. I have a very definite point of view, but I'm trying to hold that back because I want you to think through this. So that being said, sober warning, word for the week, 
See it on the website if you want. Affirming hope right now, we're talking about it. Weigh in, do the little survey thing. Matthew 13, 33, once again, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Matthew chapter 13, as we said, we covered this. Jesus is trying to explain something really big. The kingdom of heaven is like, not just heaven, not just earth, the kingdom where God reigns is like this. When heaven comes to earth and God is reigning. It is like this, and there's a cluster of parables that we look through, seven teaching parables and an eighth command parable. But in all of these parables, he's explaining things. We've been through it. Most of them are a this or that thing. You're, uh, uh, it talks about people. You're either wheat or you're weed, or you're a catfish or you're tilapia. You're the one person in the world who finds the treasure or you're everybody else. You're the one person who recognizes the pricelessness of the pearl or you're everybody else. It's kind of a this or that. We are either accepted or cast away. We're either acceptable to God or cast away. And it goes on uh, in this delineated way. And right in the middle of all of these parables, when he's alone and private with his disciples, there are two short parables, really tiny ones, boom, just embedded in there. And we covered one last week. We looked at the mustard seed. And, and the mustard seed, we said, illustrated the unstoppable transformation that happens with God. It's not going to be stopped. You might not be part of it, but you're not going to stop it. Unstoppable transformation. Today we look at the leaven, and it's the inevitable, thorough transformation, not outward but inward. The inner transformation going on. Jesus is opening up this concept to his listeners. Something that they really haven't heard this way before. And as listeners understood all the symbols in this one sentence paragraph, they were very powerful symbols, but they understood them in a certain way. In the same way Forrest Gump understood a box of chocolates. That's it. I'm, that's my imitation. I had to do that for Ashley. You do love my Forrest Gump imitation. Always. Okay. But in this, they understood this in a powerful, powerful way. Jesus knows this. So he's using the symbols they understand to explain something they don't understand. So we, we have these objects in the parable. You have leaven. You have meal or dough. It's flour, basically. You have the woman who is baking, and she's also hiding. So the action of hiding has to be brought into this as well. So what is being said in this? if we're looking at it as an affirming hope. We start with this one, three measures of meal. Not just meal, not just flour, three measures of flour. And that's a term It was very significant to them that he said three measures of flour. But even before we get into the whole idea of baking bread, let's just talk about bread. Bread alone, what they thought. John 6.30, here's an example or an epitome of things. Therefore the people said to him, that is Jesus, 
What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Man, isn't it wonderful that people don't demand signs anymore today? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. Isn't it amazing? When they looked for a sign, the first thing they went to was bread. Manna is a type of heavenly bread. In the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, and I love this, Moses didn't give you bread. It wasn't this guy, it wasn't this amazing leader you had. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, comes down from heaven. That is the kingdom of heaven is like, right there. That's what it is. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And he said to them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Bread all by itself was a symbol of God's blessing, God's security, God's presence. Bread was a big deal, especially in a place where you were worried, where was your next meal coming from? Bread symbolized a whole lot of positive stuff. Very powerful symbol. And Jesus sees it so powerful that he uses it to describe himself. That's how big, that's how powerful the symbol is, how compelling the metaphor is. But the parable gives a very impractical amount of flour. Three measures converts to 42 pounds of flour. Now I know B and some of the ladies have made some great stuff and brought it into a fellowship, but I'd be willing to say I bet B has never used 42 pounds of flour for one church event. That's a lot, a lot of bread. If you can sit and eat 42 pounds of flour in a sitting, you're a very big person. <laughs> a Jewish historian, though, explains this. Where would you use that much flour? And he talks about the shoe bread, or as we often say the show bread. And it was a very special bread that was found only in one place. It was in the temple. It was put on a gold leaf table in there. And an excerpt, just to get a, a feeling for what this shoe bread was about. The manner in which the shoe bread was prepared is described in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. Going on in there, consisting of 12 loaves, apparently corresponding in number to the tribes of Israel, the shoe bread was arranged on the table in two rows of six loaves. Each loaf was made with two-tenths of an ephah, twice the quantity of the usual meal, Numbers 15.4. Without doing the math, guess what? That comes out to three measures of meal. So three measures of meal, when you're talking that type of flour, they know he's talking about the shoe bread. And the shoe bread is, guess what, known as what? The presence bread. The presence bread. 
It was also known as the continual showbread. It was that which signified the presence of God in the temple, and it was continually there. It was changed every week. It was continually there signifying God's presence. This is for God. Now, you can imagine, you know how the Jewish system was about um, uh, ceremonial ritual bread like this unleavened bread. It was unleavened for a reason. It represented God. It had to be absolutely pure. Absolutely. And the best flour was used in this. The best olive oil was used in this. As a matter of fact, the purest frankincense. There were other things you could use a less pure frankincense for, but this had to be the purest that was vital. This bread represent, this was God's physical representation before these people in the temple. It had to be pure. Three measures of meal. That's what it represented. Okay, well, let's move on to the leaven. Well, if you did catch the webcast already, you probably got this in the symbolism is leaven or yeast is an agent of fermentation. It's used to ferment all kinds of things, right? Fermentation as a symbol, spiritually, is um, corruption. And corruption is sin. So leaven represents sin. Leaven symbolizes it in that way. So here's the point. Is it in the Mosaic law, it was forbidden to have even a mustard seed size of leaven in unleavened bread. And we know how small that is. Ritual unleavened bread was the purity of God. No one would dare violate. Oh, man, if you made this mistake, you'd be like if you weren't stoned. You just didn't violate this command. No leaven in the pure bread of God. <laughs> It would be blasphemy in the worst sense. It would be blasphemy. It would be a violation of God's will unless, unless God himself did it. Unless God himself did it. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled with God. So we know what we're talking about here. Getting right with God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He made him who was not sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The God who was the pure three measures of meal became the leaven for us. What is a blasphemous action on the human side is actually God's holy plan for our salvation. God becomes sin so that you can be seen as sinless. Try and wrap your head around that one. Isaiah 53, it's not even a New Testament concept. Isaiah 53.10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him uh, to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. So whatever he does here is timeless. 
because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ, in this one sentence parable, in this little tiny parable, Jesus Christ uses an Old Testament illustration to show an Old Testament prophecy that was living out right before their eyes as they were listening. How's that for impressive? The leaven is God becomes sin, becoming our salvation, our sanctification, and our transformation. That's how it works, even as you are listening right now. This is how God works, even as we are doing this. Well, and then there's the woman who hid the leaven and worked it through the dough. What's, what's that all about? Well, let's start with the hiding side. That's suspicious, right? If you ever ask that question, you know you're looking at, you probably little kids, you might be saying that all the time. I wonder if they, you guys say that, you know. What are you hiding? Hey, what are you hiding? It's usually you don't see it as a good thing. So how could this be a positive thing in this parable? Well, let's move on. The Apostle Paul puts his ministry to the Colossian church in this way. Uh, we're reading Colossians 1.25. The stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery, the mystery which has been hidden, the mystery which has been hidden. This is what it's all about. The mystery which has been hidden for how long? From ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Hidden for ages, now revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here comes mystery, you ready? Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. It's really brilliant how Paul has written this, especially to a Greek church. You see, the Greek culture was big into hidden religions, hidden knowledge, the Gnostics. Uh, there were secret ways to get into the secret societies. There were secret initiations. You, you had to learn secret words. You had to do secret things. And that as you did each of these things, you got up another rung in the mystery. And Paul uses their own terms to pull it all upside down. He said, this way of thinking is not God. This way of thinking, we may feel people doing these type of things. It can happen in church. If I do enough things, if I learn enough things that other people don't know, uh, you know, am I getting kicked up a notch? That's not the way it works. As a matter of fact, that's anti-gospel. It's anti-Christ. Paul's shooting it down because the hidden knowledge isn't for us to earn. The hidden knowledge in creation doesn't work that way. The real hidden knowledge, the real mysteries. How does it work then? Well, Matthew 13, 11, Jesus answered and said to them, 
because it has been given to you, he's talking to his close disciples here, because it has been given, given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This mystery isn't something that's worked out, it's something that's given. 1 Timothy 3.15 through 16. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's interesting, not just the mystery of God, this is the mystery of how to have God in you. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. There's a gospel message in a few lines. Manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The mystery of godliness. It's kind of interesting to really get the full effect in the original Greek, the transliteration of the words would be more like this. Devoutness, close keep, God. The mystery is devoutness, close keep, God. That's the way it read. The mystery is the person of, the story of, the discipleship of Jesus Christ. And there's no alternative. And that devoutness, by the way, the word eusebia, it means simply this. This is devoutness, respect and reverence. Respect and reverence towards God. That's what it means to be devout. There's no other way. There's no shortcut. There's no other way to God himself. God comes in the flesh, proven, preached, and professed, period. That's the way it works. Which leads us to 1 Corinthians 2.11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? That's an interesting question. Do you know anything about yourself nobody else knows? I mean, something. Uh, I think some of us could say, well, I could, tell, I could tell you something that maybe you don't see. But do you know things about yourself no one else knows? A feeling that comes over you that nobody else knows that's there. There is a spirit within each of us, and it's just so much in us that other people, you know, simply don't know. So for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Not too much trouble understanding that. Who, who knows God, right? If it stopped there, we'd say, yeah, you know, I can see exactly how that's working. But then it goes on to say this. Now we have received. We didn't work it out. We didn't learn secret words. We didn't join a secret society. We received. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of uh, who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. That's how the mystery works, is in the receiving. The Messiah remained a mystery for generations. He remained a mystery for ages until God had prepared mankind. The salvation plan, the salvation person, remained hidden until God was ready to reveal. We didn't work it out. We can't earn it. 
It's when in God's will he decided to reveal the mystery. The secret to receiving is actually pretty simple. That word eusebia, reverence and respect towards God. No matter how much church we go to, no matter what we do, unless we are honestly reverent and respectful towards God, we will never know his mystery. No secret religions freely given to those who will honestly receive. So the leaven is the mystery. The leaven is the mystery because it was hid, right? He who became sin for us, hidden, but now is worked openly through the entire dough. No place is left untouched. He's transforming everything. The leaven is sin. We can hold that symbol, but Christ became sin for us. Now the leaven starts to make sense. The leaven which was hidden is now worked openly through the dough and it is transforming the dough. Well, what does that mean from the individual believer? Well, it means this. If the leaven, the, the one who was not sin became sin for you and now you become sinless before God. If that leaven is worked through you, it is thorough. We cannot compartmentalize our lives anymore. There isn't this situation where you can come to church and then when you're in here, your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And when you leave this place and the first business person who gives you trouble, you're ripping into them. Or the first waitress who doesn't bring your water, you're ripping into her. Or your family, or your children, or your wife, or your husband. If we are not the fruits of the Spirit all the time in every aspect of our lives, frankly, this is the honest truth. You are living a lie. You are living a lie. You might say, well, well I try. Uh, we understand none of us are perfect and we won't be in this life. We all have our bad moments. But there is a pattern to your life. There is an MO, if you will. And if the MO is the fruit of the Spirit in one part of your life, and you're an absolute monster in another part of your life, if you're God-like God in this part of your life and godless in this part, you're living a lie. It's not going to work. And I don't say that from my standpoint. I say it from God's Word. The leaven is God work thoroughly through every measure of your being. Even, get this, when no one's looking you're still being godly, even when no one's looking. That's what the, the uh, kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like your inner transformation. That's what it's like. But who is the woman? What does she really represent? And of course, there's a collective side to that as well, and the transformation outward and with each other. The woman... We covered in the webcast the side that uh, uh, the woman can be a negative symbol and is used in, as a negative symbol for all the way from the Chronicles all the way through Revelation. There can be a negative symbol. When the woman is used as a negative symbol in Scripture, generally it refers to a false religion, a Jezebel, the, the great prostitute on the, on the beast, 
uh, a false value system. It symbolizes something very negative like that. But in the positive sense, the woman is also used in the positive sense as well. Uh, the church is referred to as, as the what of Christ. It's the bride, right? The bride of Christ. Did you uh, catch the wisdom of Proverbs is referred to in the female gender? But the most important symbol of all requires a little bit of digging into language. You would know this text, John 15, 26, Jesus speaking, he says, But when the Helper comes, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Helper, who is the Spirit of truth, the beside caller, the parakletos, Here's how that term is defined. That helper is defined as one called to one side, one who pleads another's cause, an intercessor, and in the broadest sense, a supporter, an aider, or assistant. Now, let's go back several thousand years before John and before the Greek language to the ancient Hebrew. Genesis 2.18 and the Lord God said, it is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make for him a guess what? A helper comparable to him. But for Adam, there was not found a helper. Adam Adama is dirt, which refers to man. So there, I, ladies, don't use that in a, in a, a domestic argument. Please say your husband's dirt. But, Linguistically, it's true. But for Adam, there was no, not found a helper comparable to him. Then the rib from which the Lord uh, God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Helper in the, in the old Hebrew was Ezer. And it means, guess what? Supporter, aider, one who assists, one who helps. The Holy Spirit is a person. That's one thing we know biblically that's solid. And we know that he's referred to in the masculine, but here's the catch. The role of the Holy Spirit is referred to in the feminine. If you want to say it, the Holy Spirit does women's work. <laughs> the Holy Spirit in his role is a, referred to in the feminine. It, so it would mean this, if you were to, to use this, to, the, the biblical family would work like this. If the husband represents Christ, the wife represents the Holy Spirit. Wow, can you imagine if every home worked with that dynamic? The husband is like Christ, but the wife is like the Holy Spirit. Pretty amazing thing to consider. So in the parable, the woman is the Holy Spirit working. She is the, the Holy Spirit working, and she is kneading the dough. She's working this hidden leaven through the dough, which we know is God revealing. He is revealing he who was not sin, who became sin, that so you could be seen as sinless. She's working this through the dough, and the outcome is all the dough is transformed. Everything is transformed. Collectively, 
God is working through this place. If the Spirit of God is working in churches like this, He's working right now as you are listening. He is working through the dough, collectively. Globally, the church, the universal church, working the dough, what was not known is now revealed. Individually, the transformation that is going on is first an inner transformation for you, and it's a thorough transformation. That's the symbology coming, coming out there. The kingdom of heaven is like this unstoppable outer transformation, and it is also this completely thorough inner transformation. The kingdom of heaven is like this going on right now as you hear. The secret to the transformation is devoutness, the respect continually, the eusebia, the honest reverence for Christ. The kingdom of heaven then is like you transforming and by your transformation with other people who are transforming, transforming the world in which we live. The kingdom of heaven is like that, transformation. How do you turn a catfish into a tilapia? There you go. So there's two interpretations. Both of them are valid. I invite you to listen to both of them. One deals with a very sober warning. And it makes sense in the way that as Jesus presents what he's saying, he says, people will come in and try to corrupt this. We know that happened. So regardless of where it sits in the parable, we know that's true. And it still offers us a question because no matter which way you lean, you have to ask yourself, are you biblically equipped enough? Are you spiritually disciplined enough that you can sense when things are becoming corrupted? It's also a promise. Um, and it's a path to transformation. If it's this type of thing, the sinless world is relentless. They did a great job discussing this side of it in the class today. This relentless, sinful culture. And so that means for you and I, every day, we're either transforming or conforming. Every day, it's the same thing. So if we lean this way with the parable, the question then becomes, are you rich enough in your relationship with God that it's continual enough that you are transforming and not conforming? Before we pray, we're really not done with the sermon because like I say, the idea is to have you, you, use your minds, your hearts, your critical thinking in the Lord. Listen to both points of view. Which way do you lean? I won't say anything about it uh, other than this. Whichever way you, you do lean, it better be towards the Lord. It better be towards the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like this.